Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. So I've been dialoguing with a Jewish friend of mine who is reading through the Torah and asking me questions. Recently, he asked me something I've heard other folks ask as well. What does it mean that the Jewish people are chosen? Isn't that kind of self-centered? In response, I thought of Shaul's encouragement to the community in Corinth. This is what he says. For you see your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many are wise according to human standards. Not many are powerful. Not many are born well. Yet God chose the foolish things of the world so he might put to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world so he might put to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly and despised things of the world, the things that are as nothing, so that he might bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast before God. Paul is suggesting that chosenness is a matter of God's favor on the quote-unquote weak who are strong in Hashem. But I wanted to give my friend an equivalent encouragement from the Hebrew scriptures. So I suggested he read Deuteronomy 7, which is in this week's Parsha. This is what it says. It is not because you are more numerous than all the peoples that Adonai has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the least of all peoples. Rather, because of his love for you and his keeping the oath, he swore to your fathers, Adonai brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. <clears throat> Same idea as the other text, I thought. This will be encouraging, I thought. Israel was chosen not because they were great and mighty, but because they were weak, and through them, God's redemption would unfold, I thought. However, I forgot about uh, the verses right before this passage that says something a little different. <clears throat> so this is what it says, and this is what my friend read. When Adonai, your God, brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out many nations before you, the Hittite and the Girgashite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, Stalactite, Stalag, no, sorry. <clears throat> Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And Adonai gives them over to you, and you are to strike them down. You are to ugh, utterly destroy them. Sorry. You are to make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. You are not to intermarry with them. You are not to give your daughter to his son or take his daughter for your son. For, you, for he will turn your son away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Adonai will be kindled against you, and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, you are to deal with them like this. Tear down their altars, smash their pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to Adonai your God from all the peoples on the face of the earth. Adonai your God has chosen you to be his treasured people. <clears throat> so my friend came back to me after my recommendation. 
I read Deuteronomy 7. So, what'd you think? You know, it's this sort of thing that turned me off from Judaism and the Torah many years ago. I should mention here, by the way, is where I remembered the bit in the chapter about utterly, utterly destroying those seven nations. Uh, yes, I stammered. Uh, why does God say to destroy these other people in the land, he wanted to know. Well, I said, I can offer some explanations now, but let me do some research and get back to you on that. So, as an open letter to my friend, here's the result of that research, starting with seven interpretive Torah tips for tough texts. Number one, look to the immediate context. Let's do this like uh, they do in uh, Family Feud. Let's all say it together. Number two, look to the halakha. Number three, look to the morality in Torah. Number four, look to the ancient Near East worldview. Look to number five, oh sorry, number five, look to the Shema. Number six, look to the Messianic era. And number seven, look to Yeshua. Survey says, ding, 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 yes, all right. So these are the tips. First, let's look to the immediate context. We notice in the original text that it has already begun to be interpreted. The interpretation of the destruction, which is cherem in Hebrew, comes as don't intermarry with them and get rid of their high places and their idols, if you notice. In other words, it's a caution against idolatry. Intermarriage seems to function well in the scriptures, as with, let's say, Ruth, when the non-Israelite spouse clings to two things, clings to the God of Israel and the people of Israel. Otherwise, as with, say, King Solomon, it can lead to idolatry and other mishigas. Okay, for more on the history and helpful counsel about intermarriage, if you are intermarried, I recommend highly Rabbi David Rudolph's book, Growing Your Olive Tree Marriage, a guide for couples from two traditions. My comments in this sermon about healthy intermarriage uh, being uh, clinging to the God of Israel and the people of Israel is one of the main theses of his book. This brings us to halakha, which is tip number two. And for those who think I'm just clearing my throat up here, let me explain what halakha is, okay? So literally it means the way to walk. It's related to the verb halach, okay? And, uh, but it, figuratively it refers to the interpretation of the Torah laws, right? How do you walk them out, so to speak? How they are applied in different contexts and in different communities. So how is, how is the cherem text here interpreted or what is the halakha for this text in, in, within the scriptures themselves? Because there are stories within the scriptures where they apply this text. And so what happens? This is theologian Matthew Lynch providing an example. Quote, in the book of Kings, we read how the high priest Hilkiah found the long lost book of the law in the temple, which most think is the book of Deuteronomy. When Josiah, the king, heard the book read, he was horrified that he and the people were not in compliance. So Josiah went on a rampage, tearing down every known place of illicit worship. 
The narrator of Kings makes a point of the fact that Josiah carried out all the commands of Deuteronomy 7.5, the Cherem text, but not against Canaanite peoples. Instead, he carried out the Cherem against Israelite places of worship. Interesting, right? In other words, Josiah carried out the harem command of Deuteronomy 7.5, yet without exterminating entire people groups. He didn't go hunting for Hivites and Girgashites, right? But instead understood the true sense of the law by seeking radical differentiation from all forms of Canaanite worship, unquote. Later, halakha within Judaism follows the logic of this righteous king, Josiah, worship the God of Israel alone. Which brings us to tip number three, look to the morality in Torah. The general thrust of the ethic in Torah is very clear on this matter. Be kind to the stranger because you were strangers in Egypt. The laws and counsel about compassion for the ger, resident immigrant, abound and were probably used as the backbone for Paul's counsel and encouragement toward non-Jews in the body of Messiah. These are part of the immutable laws, the covenant that is binding on Israel for all time, always. The harem instructions are always bound by specific circumstance. Not so with the covenantal laws. And this brings us to tip number four. Look to the ancient Near East worldview and uh, hold on to your key pote because it's about to get weird. Theologian Dr. Michael Heiser has a theory about the harem or destruction enacted by Joshua to fulfill the Deuteronomy 7 commandments when he entered the land. The regions where this took place was the land of the Anakim. Who were the Anakim, you ask? Good question. The Bible associates the Anakim with giants or Nephilim. Here is an example from Numbers 13:33. Just for context, this is when the spies or the scouts came back with a bad report about the land of Israel. We also saw there the Nephilim, the sons of Anak or the Anakim are from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our eyes as well as theirs. Dr. Heiser traces the Nephilim giants to a mysterious text in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Let's check it out. Now, when humankind began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, then the sons of God, B'nai Elohim in Hebrew, saw that the daughters of men were good, and they took for themselves wives, any they chose. Then Adonai said, my spirit will not remain with humankind forever since they are flesh, so their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, whenever the sons of God came to the daughters of men and gave birth to them. Those were mighty men of old, men of renown. So the text itself is strange and seems to be pretty neutral. It's just like, well, this thing happened, right? There were the sons of God came down to earth and, you know, did what they did, right? Um, but it has some parallels to Genesis 3, if you look at the, the text. So 
the rebellion of humanity to take what they perceive to be good, the fruit from the forbidden tree, and take and eat it. It's the same verbs that are here, right? Uh, Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was good and took it and ate it. And these, uh, these sons of God, B'nai Elohim, saw that the women were beautiful, or it's tov, tova in, in, in Hebrew, good, and took them, right? Right, so it's the same, uh, same verbs. There's a kind of crossing of boundaries against God's good order. And we see that clearly in Genesis 3, and it's alluded to here in Genesis 6, with the heavenly beings, the B'nai Elohim, entering into a foreign realm. They're entering into the realm of the earth to commit a parallel rebellion against God. The result is Nephilim, which are connected, as we saw, to giants, right, in other parts of the Hebrew Bible. Nephilim also has the Hebrew verb nafal in it, and you can kind of hear it in English even. What does that mean? Nafal is to fall. So these are sometimes referred to in the Bible as the fallen ones, which fits with the, the, the worldview here, right? Now, if any of this sounds strange, keep in mind the original writers and readers of the Torah had a different worldview than we do, right? They didn't have, you know, cell phones and Google. They, they thought about things differently. Sometimes trying to figure out their mindset as best we can helps us to interpret tough texts. In this case, there's a connection between the giants, the rebellious heavenly beings that fell, the Nephilim, and the land areas and people groups devoted to harem or destruction. In describing the campaign of Joshua, there's a little tidbit of info. This is from Joshua 11, verse 22. There were, there were none of the Anakim left in the land of B'nai Israel, except except some were left in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So he was fulfilling this, this commandment and getting rid of the Anakim associated with the giants, right? But there were some left over. He didn't completely do it, right? So was there a famous giant from Gath who spouted blasphemies about the God of Israel to the Messianic king. Goliath was from Gath, right? So this theme, it tracks throughout the scriptures. It's in there. The main point that Dr. Heiser is making and that I agree with is that perhaps these harem texts were about addressing an unseen evil force related to giants and that the campaigns of Joshua, which fulfill the Deuteronomy text, can be understood in this way. For more about this worldview, you could check out Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. So what were the tips so far? Let's, uh, let's recap. Number one, oh, it's not gonna go up there, so see if you can remember. Number one, look to the immediate context. Number two, look to the halakha or halacha, as I like to say. Look, number three, oh, you're giving it away, that's okay. It's fun to say it together. Number three, look to the morality in Torah. And number four, look to the ancient Near East worldview. And this brings us to point number five, 
look to the Shema. The Shema is perhaps the central prayer or faith statement of Judaism. Listen, O Israel, Hashem is our God. Hashem is one, Echad. This is primarily about two things. First, Hashem, or the name of God, appears here. And it means that Yudhe Vavhe is our God and not some other so-called God with a small g of the ancient Near East. Uh, second, the idea that Hashem is Echad or one, uh, it alludes to not only the unique oneness, the complex unity of God, but also the idea that someday God's name will be one. That is his goodness and kingship will cover the earth and the kingdom of heaven and earth will be in the same place. This is the idea behind the verse from Zechariah 9.14, which is part of our Shabbat liturgy, and you'll, you'll hear it after the sermon. Adonai will then be king all over the earth. On that day, Adonai will be Echad and his name Echad. Adonai will be one and his name one. It's the same uh, word that is used in the Shema. As we mentioned before, this, this text was interpreted to be about avoiding idolatry. In other words, worshiping God alone. So by tearing down the high places devoted to other so-called gods, King Josiah was walking in the fullness of the Shema, worshiping the true God alone and proclaiming the extension of his kingdom over the land. In other words, the things that when he was taking down those high places, this land belongs to God. This is God's because he is Echad. He is one. And this brings us to tip, what are we up to? Number six. You still with me? All right. Look to the Messianic era. In some ways, the Messianic age is now because Yeshua proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven is upon us. So the writers of the New Covenant texts have this kind of understanding that we have described the connections between idolatry and rebellion against God and the Nephilim, the fallen heavenly beings, which I refer to uh, frequently on the Bema as the other team, right? There's, you know, the good team, right? That's the Lord, and he's a Lord of hosts. He's a Lord of angel army, armies, Adonai Tsevaot. And then there's the other team, okay. So this is how I understand the Apostle Shaul in his letters to the community in Ephesus. This is from Ephesians 5. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the worldly forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. One could argue that this is a continuation of Joshua's battle, King David's battle against the giants, against the Philistines. In the Messianic era, we fight in a different way. We fight against the darkness of sin and idolatry and rebellion against God, injustice to the poor, and all forms of evil. And this leads us to tip number seven, look to Yeshua. The gospel narratives are full of Yeshua driving out the enemy forces, 
just like Joshua. But how did he do it? By casting out the other team, casting out demons, healing the sick, delivering folks that were hurting from the other team. Here are just a few excerpts from the first chapter of Mark's gospel. And I want you to think about how this parallels what Joshua was doing and the Deuteronomy text. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have we to do with you, Yeshua of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Yeshua rebuked him saying, quiet, come out of him. In the unclean spirit, after throwing the man into convulsions, crying out with a loud voice came out of him. They were all so amazed that they asked among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately news about him spread throughout the region surrounding Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with Jacob and John to the house of Simon and Andrew. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. Right away, they told Yeshua about her. He came and raised her up by taking her hand. The fever left her and she began to take care of them. When evening came at sunset, the people brought to him all the sick and those that were afflicted by demons. The whole town gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not allow the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In some ways, Yeshua is another Joshua of sorts, fulfilling the text of Deuteronomy 7, Cherem text, in a totally unique and new way. After all, Joshua, or Yahashua in Hebrew, has the same root as Yeshua's name. What does it mean? Salvation. What is salvation? That's deliverance, right? This is what the Gospels are all about right? Saving God's people, Israel, from sickness and death and the other team. And so we see that there are many tools that we have when we come across difficult passages of scripture. We can look to the immediate context, the halakha or interpretive tradition, the morality in Torah, the ancient Near East worldview, the Shema, the Messianic era, to Yeshua, or perhaps God is calling us right now and we can listen to his ruach, I don't know. I just had a sense of that. If we are troubled by the destruction texts or campaigns of Joshua, it just means perhaps we just need to dig a little deeper to see the beautiful narratives of ethical compassion and deliverance from evil that are all throughout our Torah and Besorah. I will close with a final bit of tip number seven lest we think even a smidgen that the Deuteronomy 7 text gives us an excuse to mistreat others in the land of Israel or anywhere else. Some words from Yeshua, the fullness of the Torah on how we should treat our enemies. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Let's pray. Avinu Malkenu, our Father and our King, 
We thank you for your Torah, your instruction to us. We thank you even for the difficult passages that are hard to understand because it, it causes us to draw near to you and to try to figure it out. And uh, we, we trust you and we pray that as we read your Torah, that you would illuminate uh, the words and give, give us understanding and help us use these, uh, these tools to understand what you're trying to say to us and to understand that in the battles that we fight, are different from the battles perhaps that Joshua fought, but uh, it's the same idea. And that is that you are king over the whole earth and that you are bringing your goodness over the whole earth. And you are partnering with us as your, we are your junior partners in bringing tukun olam, reparation of the world, that the blind will see, that the, the, the dead will be raised, that the sick will be healed in the kingdom of heaven under King Yeshua. And in his name we pray. Amen.